This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Winter 2015. At the Obama White House, we were at the height of the fight against ISIS. The first round of Jordanian airstrikes against ISIS in Syria is now underway. U.S. warplanes, as you would expect, are flying alongside in support of the Jordanians. The U.S. It put the Republican Party in an awkward position. Of course, they wanted to label Obama as weak, but they didn't want to argue for a bigger war with American troops on the ground. They knew Americans wanted to be tough on terrorism, but they also knew Americans didn't want another Iraq war. So instead of attacking our airstrikes, they attacked the way that we talked about them, insisting that we call our counter-ISIS campaign a global war against radical Islam. That's a term we never put in Obama's speeches. In fact, Republicans took every opportunity to point out. Last month, President Obama came under fire for referring to violent extremism without any mention of Islam. Here's what I really do have a problem with. Our president will not call this radical Islam. That won't even say the word jihad, won't even say the words radical Islamic terrorism. It was a cynical, dangerous move. Time and again, we explain terrorists like ISIS want us to frame our conflicts as a war on Islam. Because the best way to radicalize someone is to make them feel like their faith, their identity, is under attack. When Osama bin Laden was killed, we even found documents in his compound in which he proposed changing al-Qaeda's name because it didn't sound religious enough. So why did the GOP still want to frame the ISIS fight in religious terms? For the same reason that a few months later, in the presidential primaries, they tried to outdo each other in denigrating Muslims or imposing religious tests on immigration. The reality is, all jihadists are Muslims. We have to stop worrying about offending some people and start defending all Americans. We will carpet bomb them into oblivion. I don't know if sand can glow in the dark, but we're going to find out. It's time to wake up and smell the falafel. Something isn't going right in this open immigration so policy. Would you put it we are importing terrorism. It's the same reason Trump, as pretty much his first act as president, moved to ban the people of some Muslim countries from entering the United States. I'm establishing new vetting measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. They did it to scare up votes by demonizing an entire faith, even though millions of Americans practice Islam. And in the process, they radicalized a group of their own. They're mostly white and Christian base. I'm Ben Rhodes, and welcome back to Missing America. A look at the political diseases sweeping across the world and the absence of American leadership. This week, sectarianism, in which a government turns one religious group against another for political gain. It's an us-versus-them brand of politics that can unleash violence, oppression, 
and endless cycles of backlash that can last generations, like its cousin, nationalism, on steroids. We'll learn how sectarianism has turned the world's largest democracy into an increasingly Hindu nationalist state. Overnight, perfectly alright neighbors, perfectly normal people turned savages. And we'll learn why America has to return to the mission of promoting diversity as a strength. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. Not just for our own sake, but for the planet's. On this episode of Missing America. India knows what sectarianism can lead to. In 1947, as the British were leaving, the country was partitioned into Hindu-majority India and Muslim-majority Pakistan. Almost immediately, Hindus and Muslims in both nations started killing each other. A million people died. Amartya Sen is a Nobel Prize-winning thinker. He was in Bombay at the time and remembers how leaders like Gandhi quelled the violence. Gandhi walked around through light-torn areas, both Hindu majority and Muslim majority, fearless as he always was, and demonstrating that there was nothing that one should fear. But Gandhi himself would later be killed by a Hindu nationalist. Between that and the horror of partition, it shocked India into embracing secular politics, where people of all religions are supposed to be treated as equals. Over the last few years, though, that's changed. Rana Ayub, a journalist who writes for the Washington Post, can tell us how it happened and why it matters. She's lived it. Rana's always known that the relationship between India's Hindus and Muslims is fraught. In school, she was taught about partition. Intellectually, she understood her country was born out of that sectarian spasm. But as a little girl growing up in Mumbai in the 80s, she really didn't feel it, even though she was part of the only Muslim family in a community of Hindus. Our neighbors were absolutely perfectly normal people. I mean, we used to celebrate all festivals together. In fact, during the Hindu festivals, uh, our family used to be called for help. We used to go to the temple. We used to help with the decoration. And we were the only Muslim family in a housing society of about 2,000 Hindu families. And we never felt insecure. We were a respected family. At no point was our religious identity thrust upon us. At the time, India's Congress party dominated the political landscape, like it pretty much had for 70 years. It was the party of Gandhi, a big tent party, trying to build coalitions of Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, and Christians. But the political landscape was about to shift. Ayodhya, India, December 6, 1992 the destruction of the Babri Masjid. That's a 16th century mosque built by Muslim conquerors on a piece of land that was sacred to India's Hindus, the birthplace of the Hindu god, Lord Ram. The mosque became a symbol for a belief that India's Hindu identity was being stolen, fueling centuries of grievance. The two religions had clashed over it many times until the government closed it for the sake of public safety. In 92, Spurred on by a right-wing political party, a throng of Hindus jumped the barricades, swarmed over the mosque, and demolished it. 
Rana Ayub was nine years old. Suddenly, on 6th December, I remember my mom's, uh, our neighbor, who was closest to our family, and the day the Babri Masjid was demolished, she comes home and she knocks the door, and I remember very distinctly, and she says, uh, you, do you see the, there's a whiff of fresh air emanating from Ayodhya? A whiff of fresh air. From the town where a mosque had just been turned to rubble. And my mom just stared at her and she said, what just happened? I mean, a mosque has been demolished and she's at my house asking me to celebrate this. And overnight, perfectly all right neighbors, perfectly normal people turned savages. People who you called your best friends, your neighbors. Rana's family hid out in a Sikh neighbor's apartment. While all over Mumbai, bloody riots raged for weeks. An estimated 2,000 people died. The vast majority were Muslims. And one day our father said, we have to pack because we're not safe here. And I said, where are we going? He said, we are going to a Muslim locality where we will be safe. And I had never thought of the concept safe. I said, Abba, why aren't we safe here? I said, because there are too many Hindus here. And I said, so where are we going? He said, we are going to a place where there are only Muslims. Rana's family escaped to a new home in a Muslim suburb, next to a slaughterhouse and a trash dump. But they couldn't escape the way Muslims were increasingly talked about and treated in India. From big things, like banks refusing to give Muslims credit cards, to more subtle ones. I remember in school, every time there was an India-Pakistan match and I would get into the classroom and I'd be asked, what team are you supporting this evening? So you always had to prove your patriotism and your Indianness, And that remains the same to this day. From then on, Rana would be painfully aware of being a minority Muslim in a majority Hindu country. And painfully aware of how quickly religious rage and historical grievances dating back centuries can be weaponized by politicians. Which brings us to Narendra Modi. In 2001, Modi became chief minister of the Indian state of Gujarat. He'd been rising in the ranks of the right-wing BJP party for a while. But his longest political affiliation, since he was eight years old, was with a group called the RSS. The RSS is a far-right Hindu nationalist organization dedicated to making India an essentially Hindu country. Back in the day, their leaders openly admired the likes of Mussolini. The man who killed Gandhi had ties to the RSS. Over the years, the Indian government banned the RSS three times, most recently in 93 after the demolition of the Babri Masjid. So it wasn't a total surprise when, just four months after Modi took office in Gujarat, the state exploded in sectarian violence. It started with a train car full of Hindu pilgrims, which got set on fire during a clash with Muslims. Hindu mobs raged through the state, burning their neighbors alive and raping women. Another outbreak of rioting. This time, around a 1,000 people died. Again, mainly Muslims. And Modi did nothing to stop the violence. In fact, in speeches, he almost seemed to be condoning it. Rana Ayub, now 19 years old, watched this all play out on TV and decided to go to Gujarat as a relief worker. And the hatred for Muslims, there was no facade. There was just, it was just bare. So there were eight women of the same family who were gang raped by their neighbors. And every corner, I remember, every corner and every lane was was just bodies. And Mr. Modi's office was just like a stone's throw away 
from where this was happening, from where the relief camps were set. And that man, till today, has neither apologized, nor expressed regret, nor spoken to the media. In the aftermath, the U.S. and British governments banned Modi from traveling to their countries. Rana Ayub took a more personal approach. What she saw in Gujarat inspired her to become an investigative journalist. And eight years later, working for an Indian magazine, she set her sights on Modi, who was serving a second term in Gujarat. No one would talk to a Muslim reporter about it, so she went undercover. So I decided to be this uh, Hindu girl, a Hindu nationalist girl, and I got a fake passports and, you know, I changed my appearance, fake lenses. I lived a different life of a Hindu girl. And I wore about eight cameras on my body. There were my earrings, in my diary, in my watch, everywhere. She pretended to be a student from the American Film Institute in Hollywood. She started mingling in elite social circles, filmmakers, high society, politicians. And then they allowed me access to Mr. Modi's ministers and his bureaucrats. So in a span of eight months, I have 40 hours of recordings with Mr. Modi's home minister, his Home Secretary, his Commissioner of Police, Mr. Modi himself towards the end, where they confess on camera that the carnage of Muslims was at the behest of Mr. Modi and that he destroyed evidence systematically, that he suspended officials who were trying to save Muslims, that he gave provocative speeches, that he did not call for extra forces to protect Muslims while the carnage was happening. So I thought I had the most damning confessions and I thought this would change the course of history of Indian journalism and Mr. Modi's own career. Except it didn't. When she came back to her magazine with the scoop, her editors killed the story. She tried shopping it around to other magazines. Same deal. The reason, she says? They were scared. Everybody is scared of Modi and his ministers. Not least of all, because he was shaping up to be a likely prime minister. Rana had a hard time believing that. The year was 2011. And I remember when anybody used to make this, you know, have loose conversations around Mr. Modi's candidature and saying perhaps he could be the prime minister. And I would laugh at it. I said, you guys, you can't be serious. A man like Modi who has blood on his hands cannot be the prime minister of India. She was wrong. In 2014, Modi was elected to India's highest office by a landslide. It's quite clear Modi will be the next prime minister and uh, the BJP is forming the government. Modi's BJP party also won a clear majority of seats in the parliament, the first party to do so in three decades. The Congress party got its teeth knocked out. Rana wanted to know how this could have happened. She knew the incumbent Congress party had been implicated in a slew of corruption scandals. But, she says, she also underestimated how many Indians would vote with their wallets. The Indian economy was sputtering, and many who hadn't supported Modi's sectarian past were willing to turn a blind eye to get economic reform. The biggest disappointment was the Indian businessmen. Everybody was bending over backwards to accommodate Mr. Modi, overlooking his fascist agenda, seeing him as some kind of a visionary leader, who means business, who's going to lead India and bring in some some kind of reforms. There was an amnesia over Mr. Modi's past was normalized. But ultimately, she couldn't deny that something else was at work. Something darker. I never imagined that a man like him could be accepted by India on a national level. 
but then i was made to realize that mr modi did not win the indian elections despite the 2002 carnage but because of the 2002 carnage he was elected as the prime minister because he was seen as a leader of the hindu majority in india who could show muslims their place some modi supporters definitely tried to show rana her place she self published her undercover work about modi as a book and proceeded to be hounded by his followers on social media she was doxed her phone number and address given out online she get a call before a tv interview from someone saying they were waiting outside the building to kill her and then she got a call from one of her sources an intelligence official in modi's government he gives me a 31 page dossier and he said this is for you as what does it mean he said i'm protective about you and i want you to know that this is happening so i look at the dossier and every two pages are details of each family members of mine so what does my father do what time does he go for his morning walk what does my mother do what do my siblings do what what are the latest investments what flights do i take so it was a means of telling me that they're watching me and all the while as modi's followers made rana's life hell the rest of the world embraced him namaste wembley In his campaign for prime minister, Modi hadn't portrayed himself as a nationalist firebrand, but as a reformer, someone who'd end the political gridlock and modernize the economy. David Cameron welcomed him with the stadium rally. Here we are at Wembley, where Prime Minister Modi is set to speak to the biggest gathering of the Indian diaspora he's ever addressed. And yes, President Obama welcomed him too. It is a great pleasure to welcome back uh, my friend uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, and the uh, Indian delegation to the Oval Office. I'll be the first to admit this has an aged well. We debated it at the time. I was conflicted. But we figured we could encourage Modi to be the reformer he said he wanted to be and not the strongman his history suggested he would be. Maybe engaging him would give us more influence over what he did. and there were some important things we wanted to get done india is the third most polluting country in the world so we needed modi to sign on to an ambitious paris climate accord for a while it seemed to work india did join the paris accords modi's nationalist followers were emboldened and there were moves in a more nationalist direction but many of his government's actual policies were somewhat restrained Then in February last year things escalated. Multiple casualties after a blast along a highway in Indian administered Kashmir, one of the worst attacks to hit the disputed Himalayan region in almost 3 years. Control of the region of Kashmir is split between India and Pakistan. But both sides claim they should control it all. Muslim militants living there have been fighting Indian forces for years. One of them detonated a car bomb that killed more than 40 Indian soldiers and gave Modi a perfect enemy to mobilize his country against Muslim Pakistan he called in an airstrike his poll numbers shot up he won a second term and Narendra Modi went full Hindu nationalist he rolled troops into Kashmir shut off the internet and detained opposition figures his government passed a citizenship bill that restricted immigration from some muslim majority nations 
and classified millions of Muslims in India as migrants, stripping them of their rights. In a speech, Modi's Minister of Home Affairs called them termites. Meanwhile, shortly after the election, mobs around the country rounded up Muslims and lynched them, supposedly for illegally smuggling beef into states where Hindus consider cows sacred. And that was before the coronavirus gave rise to another wave of Islamophobia. The narrative in India right now is that Muslims are spreading the virus. One of India's leading news channels, India Today, had a graphic of the virus with a Muslim skull cap. And that graphic went viral. And the Prime Minister, who's very, very vocal on Twitter, has not once admonished his own ministers and people who he follows on social media to stop making these comments or has given a warning to these news channels. So I think it's... I've never seen a more serious case of Islamophobia in India as I see it right now. It's a state-enabled propaganda. For Modi, this is all working as planned. Recent polls show him with approval ratings as high as 90%. The damage will be hard to undo. Once the Pandora's box of sectarian politics has been opened, it is painfully hard to reverse. Rana places whatever hope she has on two things. First, in the young Indians who came out in unprecedented numbers to protest his citizenship bill. And second, on us. I think it is time for the United States to seek accountability of the hate crimes that Mr. Modi has legitimized in India. India, as the world's largest democracy, if the world's largest democracy, I mean, goes down under, then ripples will be felt by the rest of the world. How can we help prevent that from happening? Coming up on Missing America. Missing America is brought to you by Blinkist. Let me tell you about a secret weapon for learning new things and getting ahead. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information, from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestseller lists, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read, but never had time to. I like Blinkist because you can get that key information, get those takeaways in just 15 minutes and be a little smarter. Or you can look at them and decide whether or not you want to read a whole book. Check out their catalog. There are so many things that you can find there. Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis by Jared Diamond, one of our best writers and thinkers, talking about, well, something we could learn a lot from now, Nations in Crisis. Or Best Friend of the Pod, Dan Pfeiffer, his extraordinary book, Untrumping America, is on Blinkist tells you what the Democrats need to do to win this election and reform our democracy more generally. Bill McRaven, the Navy SEAL responsible for the Osama bin Laden operation. His memoir, Sea Stories, My Life in Special Ops, on Blinkist. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com missing. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash missing to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off. But only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash missing. 
Missing America is brought to you by Wondery. We here at Missing America are no strangers to international political scandals, especially ones that feature a brash leader connected to criminal activity. These leaders seem to hypnotize their unwavering base, like Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, as told in the upcoming event miniseries by Wondery, Bunga Bunga. I met Berlusconi when I worked for President Obama. It was a bit like meeting Trump a few years before Trump became president. Silvio Berlusconi threw wild sex parties, blackmailed government officials, and rewrote the laws to protect and enrich himself and his friends, all while publicly promising to root out corruption. For almost 20 years, he had Italy and much of the world in the palm of his hands. Silvio thought he was invincible, until two words brought his entire empire crashing down. Bunga, bunga. This new podcast takes on the story of Silvio Berlusconi and his infamous stint as Italy's prime minister. And with Whitney Cummings as the host, you've never heard a story quite like this. Well, maybe you have, because it's going to sound familiar. Bunga Bunga is available on Apple Podcasts, where you can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Download the app today. Missing America is brought to you by Babbel. Learning language is always on my to-do list. It's always the one thing I wish I knew how to do more. And there's no better time to start doing it than right now. Babbel can help you become a fluent speaker faster than you think. Every time I tried to learn a new language, it never seemed to stick. So I decided to give Babbel a try, and now I'm hooked. Babbel makes it fun and easy to start having conversations on Espanol, that's what I'm up to, or whatever your preferred language. Or if you want to relearn that language you took in high school or college, but think it will take too much time, Babbel can help you pick it back up fast. I've been brushing up on my French lately, and Babbel's helping a lot. So I've always wanted to learn that new language, and I know it can be intimidating, whether it's time, effort, or money, but Babbel gets rid of all those roadblocks, so you can start speaking sooner. Babbel's proven to get you speaking a language within weeks. They design their courses with real-world conversation in mind, letting you learn everyday practical conversations that you'll actually use. The daily lessons are 10 to 15 minutes and start by teaching you words and phrases. Then, sentences gradually get more complex. Soon, you're practicing short conversations. Lessons are thoughtfully created by over 100 language experts, and their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective across multiple studies. This is a time when we should be listening to science, and it tells you that Babbel works. They even have speech recognition technology that helps improve your pronunciation and accent. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. And Babbel is available as an app or online, so your progress will be synced across all devices. Right now, when you purchase a three-month subscription, Babbel will give our listeners three additional months for free with promo code MISSING. That's three additional months free if you go to babbel.com and use promo code MISSING on your three-month subscription. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com, promo code MISSING. Missing America is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. This is a challenging time to own a business. You're dealing with an historic pandemic, an historic economic collapse. You have to do social distancing at work. Your employees have to wear masks. You're dealing with all the trends we've talked about on this show, which doesn't make anything easier. Well, Monica Starks could relate. She needed to hire for a pivotal role at her construction company, GS Group, but was having a tough time finding the right person, especially with so many candidates out there looking for work. So she switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. 
Its technology identifies people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash missing. That's how Monica found Lamont Jenkins. She said that ZipRecruiter sent Lamont's profile to her five minutes after she posted her job because he was a great match for the role. Through ZipRecruiter, Monica's company has hired everyone from accountants to project managers to field scientists. But Monica's not the only employer who loves ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself how ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. Try it now for free. That's right, free at ZipRecruiter.com slash missing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-I-S-S-I-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash missing. One reason the Obama administration engaged Modi is that in 2014, his campaign for prime minister was pretty normal. He downplayed his sectarian past. He played up his successful economic record. He tacked towards the center. But five years later, when he campaigned for re-election, not so much. I think 2019 was different. It was far more negative, vicious, and much more plainly and openly embracing Hindu nationalism um, and nationalism more generally. That's Pratap Banu Mehta, speaking to me from New Delhi, where for a long time, he was president of the Center for Policy Research, a progressive think tank. He chalks up Modi's change in tone and message, partly to political pragmatism. In 2019, he could not run a very effective campaign on the economy alone because the economy really had not recovered and there was no spectacular story to tell. But more importantly, he says, back in 2014, Modi was way more concerned about how India was viewed by the other major countries of the world. He cared about his relationship with leaders like Obama. He wanted to belong to what Meta calls the Big Boys Club. When you want to be a member of the Big Boys Club, there were certain norms and rules. Um, You know, what G8 leaders brought or what G20 leaders brought. I think by 2019, all that has changed dramatically. And frankly, I think there was a sense that there was very little penalty attached to not behaving well, let's put it this way. In other words, by 2019, Modi looked around and saw a lot more nationalist sectarian leaders. China had a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. Putin had his troops in Ukraine. And in the U.S., he sees Donald Trump. When we began this series, we told you about the creation of the international order after World War II, the framework of norms and rules that Pratap Banumeta mentioned. That order's largely been held together by the United States, not just legally or militarily, but most powerfully through our example. And right now, to the world's sectarian strongmen, Trump's example looks a lot like a permission slip to do their worst. PJ Thumb's seen it happen in Southeast Asia. He runs a pro-democracy organization there called New Narrative. Like it or not, right, the U.S., with its cultural capital, with its great prosperity, was a place to aspire to. So now you get the rise of the right and ultra-nationalists, and then governments can justify the very nationalistic things that they do, the very extreme things they do, the xenophobic things they do, in that same context, to say that, well, you know, we want to aspire to be America, where America has a, a 
right wing nationalist in charge. So that's okay for us to then, you know, we're not as bad as America when we lock up people. You know, look at what the American president is doing, right? Look at what these right wing regimes in Europe are doing. Indeed, just as February, in the wake of India's crackdown on Muslims, Trump basically endorsed Modi's sectarian tactics when he held a stadium rally with him in Ahmedabad, India, and dropped a familiar phrase. The United States and India are also firmly united in our ironclad resolve to defend our citizens from the threat of radical Islamic terrorism. Rana Ayub saw it up close and in person. And the moment Trump spoke about the threat to the world from Islamic terrorism, the crowd erupted in a roar and they were all clapping and cheering. You know, so it's like two leaders who speak the same language. So unless there is a change of administration in in America, I do not see any specific change. So step one for combating sectarianism, win this presidential election. Change this administration. Pratap Banu Mehta. I think if the perception grows that there is a new U.S. president who once again cares about multilateral institutions, I think that itself will actually have an effect. And the United States' own conduct, uh, both domestically and abroad, I think will have a great effect. And that's step two. With Trump gone, we can begin to undo the damage of his example by setting a positive one. A good start? Rescinding Trump's Muslim ban on day one. And then make human rights a central focus of our foreign policy. Ro Khanna represents Silicon Valley in Congress and co-chaired the Bernie Sanders campaign. Well, we certainly have to prioritize human rights, the bilateral negotiations, and make sure that that is not sixth or seventh on the agenda as something that people raise pro forma, but that really is critical to our relationship. Congressman Khanna wants to have a constructive relationship with India. But since America is made up of people from all over the world, he also thinks we can mobilize even better messengers and politicians. Like, say, the four million thriving Indian Americans living in the U.S., many of whom have supported Modi. You have the opportunity for both the uh, South Asian diaspora and American leaders to try to win over as many hearts and minds in India. So, you know, the opportunity for tech leaders and, and people who are respected to make the case that ultimately pluralistic societies are ones that are more successful, economically more successful, have more opportunity, uh, and that cultural parochialism is a bad economic strategy. And now most of that has to be indigenous within India. But to the extent that uh, people who are influential can try to win over the hearts and minds, uh, I think it's worth the effort. Still, Congressman Khan acknowledges there's a bigger, deeper problem that needs to be addressed if you want to win the hearts of people who've turned to sectarian identities in an uncertain world. We could model better behavior and certainly could provide a better example. But I think the broader question is, why do we see the rise of nationalism in places like India and other parts of the world? And what we're seeing is that people are more tied to cultural identity, that they're more tied to their religious identities than uh, we had assumed. This is something right-wing movements identified long ago something we've talked about a lot on this podcast. For better or worse, people will change their morality and even sacrifice their lives 
to be a part of a mass movement that offers a sense of pride. Pride in their identity, their nation, or maybe most unshakably, their religion. Pratap Banu Mehta says, way back, the right started doing the hard work of reinforcing or even creating these kind of identities, even during periods they didn't hold office. So if you look at the type of right-wing parties, I'm just using right-wing loosely at the moment. Globally, I think one of the things we often underestimate is how much they are helped by social movements that are independent of electoral cycles and fortunes. I mean, you could even think of the Tea Party in the United States as a kind of analog, right? Where there are organizations in India, it could be the RSS, who have done literally years and years of cultural work. Whereas I think the left in India was a little bit more socially deterministic. You know, I think we were sort of headcounting which particular social groups, which people belong to, and can we put together a social coalition? Whereas I think the right was working with the agenda of remaking social identities. The agenda of remaking social identities. What would it look like if progressives embarked on that kind of agenda? Not rejecting people on the far right as a lost cause. Not trying to appease them politically with a few right-wing policies. But by slowly, steadily, actually changing hearts as well as minds. It's not hard to imagine what that would look like. Because progressives used to do it all the time. And poetically, we were shown how by a guy from India. In theological seminar days, I had heard of Gandhi and the whole philosophy of Gandhi and uh, passive and nonviolent resistance. That's Martin Luther King talking. And at that point, I became deeply influenced by Gandhi, never realizing that uh, I would live in a situation where it would be useful and meaningful. I feel that, uh, say, organized uh, nonviolent resistance is the most powerful weapon that oppressed people can use in breaking loose from the bondage of oppression. A weapon when aimed at oppression. A peaceful movement that could grow. Gandhi brought together people of all faiths and classes to end colonialism. And then King led a movement of all races to transform America. And just like a religious movement, people were willing to sacrifice for it. Ro Khanna's own grandfather gave up his freedom to support Gandhi in India. He was in jail in the 1940s, and my grandmother tells the story of how she didn't know whether he was alive or not in those four years as she was raising young children. And she would send her oldest son, Dave, who was about 12, every year to the jail to inquire about my grandfather. And the guards would say that he was okay, but wouldn't tell him anything else. And they would take the, the sweets that uh, Dave would offer, and my grandfather never got them. So it's a reminder of uh, the extraordinary sacrifices that people have made for freedom around the world. But as we explored in our very first episode, that struggle for freedom and dignity remains unfinished today. And not just in India. London is leaning into America's pain and demanding an end to its own. By the day, these protests are gathering global momentum. Japan. South Korea. Kenya. South Africa. Lebanon. Canada, where PM Justin Trudeau took a knee. 
Everywhere there is hope. The swell of support will amount to change, finally. We know where Donald Trump stands. His response when Black Lives Matter protests erupted this summer? He tear-gassed peaceful protesters so he could pose in front of a church holding a Bible. The same sectarian impulse that led him to fulminate against radical Islam. So the movement that's united people in our streets this summer, that secular movement for equality, that's our progressive answer to the right's appeal to a religious and an exclusionary patriotism. We know that kind of movement provides an almost spiritual sense of pride. That kind of movement can bend the arc of history towards justice. That kind of movement can remake identities by making people aspire to be their better selves as individuals and as nations. But only if we do what Gandhi and King did in shifting attitudes over time. Pratap Banu Mehta believes that means reaching out to those who aren't already on board. I mean, in a way, we've sort of become too woke for our own good. And the standards are so high that it's often led to much more factional fights within the left or between the left and the center itself. And I think what we find is we end up spending far more energy, right, negotiating the differences between the center and the left than we are between this lot and people who are actually going to, you know, uh, disrupt our constitutional order very deeply and, and fundamentally, right? As opposed to saying that, look, so long as you are abiding by certain basic constitutional values, we think of this movement as a big, you know, big tent. India and the United States are the two biggest democracies in the world. We're also multi-ethnic and multi-religious countries that find strength in diversity. But now that very ideal is under threat in both our countries and around the world. So we need to do the hard work of building movements and welcoming people into the fold, even after we win this election, and whether or not we lose the next one. Because as the right realized, decades ago. Conversions don't happen overnight. Next week on Missing America, we head to the Middle East, where instead of leading the way out of sectarian conflicts, the U.S. poured gasoline on them and continues to pay the price. If you don't tie your issue of foreign policy in, in terms of promoting the rule of law, human rights, and justice, you will always have backlashes, period, simple. The blowback from endless war and what we can do to break the cycle on our next episode. Missing America is written and hosted by me, Ben Rhodes. It's a production of Crooked Media. The show is produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Rico Galliano is our story editor. Austin Fisher is our associate producer. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Ramirez. Production support and research from Nimi Uberoi and Sydney Rapp. Fact-checking by Justin Klosko. Original music by Marty Fowler. The executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Tanya Sominator. Special thanks to Allison Falzetta, Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, and John Favreau. Thanks for listening.